Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about Boxing Day. on the last Inappropriate Conversation show, talking about the 12 days of Christmas, that there are concepts out there around this holiday time of year that most of us no longer understand. Whatever significance they once had has seemingly been lost to us. And the one example that I used was the 12 days of Christmas and how widely misunderstood that is. But now I want to point the finger more at myself and say, where did I have a complete misunderstanding about a concept? And it's Boxing Day. So if you go back about 20 years or so, before I was paying that much attention to soccer as a sport, certainly at the professional level, it never would have occurred to me that Boxing Day essentially functions more as a sporting holiday. It is to world football, or at least to English football in the English Premier League, as New Year's Day is to American college football, a day when a lot of games are put on television because a lot of people are going to be off work and available to either go to the various parks to watch the games or to watch them on television. So there's that aspect of it. But even to the larger question of where does the term come from, what does it mean, and how does it fit in, I'll tell you in a minute what I believed Boxing Day was an expression of. And the slight difference there between that and reality is probably very tellingly American. First, let me go to the simple Wikipedia dictionary. Boxing Day is a public holiday in the United Kingdom, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. It is also a holiday in many other countries in the Commonwealth of Nations. It is based on a long custom of giving gifts to poor people. It is usually celebrated on the 26th of December, the day after Christmas Day. In some countries, the public holiday is moved to the next weekday if the 26th of December is a Saturday or a Sunday. In some countries, stores have sales on Boxing Day, similar to Black Friday sales in the United States. In the United Kingdom, many association football and rugby league games are played on Boxing Day. So that's a good example of kind of what I was talking about, of me understanding it as a sporting holiday. So I think if you'd asked me when I was a kid, maybe in my teens, high school age, what I thought it was, I think I came along with an understanding of the concept of Boxing Day that came from two different places, uh, two interestingly contradictory places, perhaps. One of them, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I'll get there in a minute. The other one, coming from church. As a member of a United Methodist congregation at the time, I remember hearing a sermon, probably somewhere around the Christmas or post-Christmas period, with a pastor at the time, an associate pastor perhaps, telling what he believed the story of Boxing Day was. And I can't remember the man's name, unfortunately, or I give him credit, because I think his idea is excellent, although probably not terribly accurate. His idea was that Boxing Day was a day set aside for the day after Christmas, where kids who had just received a whole bunch of new presents, especially wealthier children from wealthier families, would be called upon to go through all of their sort of their closets, their toy boxes, their cupboards, what have you, and pick out those things which they no longer needed to have a spot for because they had been replaced by other newer toys and presents. We know this as parents, I think, growing up, taking care of our kids, that at some point, some things have to go. 
And for children, many children, it's beyond their ability without some prompting from the perspective of maturity to identify those things that need to be let go. So I think in a lot of families, the old toys that disappear disappear because parents in the middle of the night, fed up with clutter, just take the things which are um, have been the most neglected away. I think you can see how I'm about to make a connection to King Moon Racer from the television program, the 1964 classic Rankin-Bass TV special, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. In Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is a story. Rudolph, along with his friends Hermie and Yukon Cornelius, have fled from the abominable snow monster by you know, chipping off a piece of ice and floating across a nearly frozen body of water, landing on an island that is populated exclusively by toys that no kids want. And the role of King Moonracer, who is a flying lion with a big booming voice, is to visit homes of children throughout the world where toys are unwanted, neglected, perhaps even abused, uh, something of you can imagine King Moonracer visiting the home of Sid in Toy Story and taking all of his possessions away from him because uh, Sid was worse than neglectful. He was an abusive toy owner, and King Moonracer brings these unwanted toys to this island not far from the North Pole, and it's the island of misfit toys. Uh, one of the song and dance numbers actually from the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer show. Uh, King Moonraisers has no singing role, though. They visit him shortly after they hear the song and get to meet the other toys on the island. And King Moonraiser reminds them that you can't run away from your problems and that although the, the toys have been taken here to avoid the, the challenges that they've faced and the neglect and what, ha- what have you, that people can't do that. And he asks Rudolph to remember them if he ever gets back to Christmastown. And at the very end of the TV special, not to spoil anything... Rudolph does remind Santa they go to the island, and those are the first toys that are delivered to homes on Santa's Christmas Eve journey. Uh, so that the happy ending there, but the concept of King Moonraiser visiting kids' rooms, finding the toys they no longer play with, and taking them away is essentially the idea that was communicated to me about the necessity of removing unwanted toys to make room for the things which are new. As kids develop and they grow up, they grow out of certain things. And it's always been a somewhat of a challenge for me. I think it's pretty in my nature, probably, that I will grow out of certain things, grow into other things, but then later become nostalgic for some, not all, but some of the things that I had previously grown out of. Uh, I think I've spoken on an appropriate conversation several times about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Clearly, for all the flaws in the script of the show, the characterization of Santa and Donner and many other adult characters as being you know, not very good in terms of their behavior is one example. But I still have a lot of nostalgia for the show, and I have, over the years, reobtained books and music from that era of my childhood. Not all of it again, but perhaps the best of the best. So Boxing Day communicated at church as this idea that I was led to believe that children in England and Ireland were using this day, regardless of their economic status or circumstances, to clean up their room, more or less, to make room for things which were being added because they just unwrapped those gifts the day before from underneath the Christmas tree. And creating this sort of a Christmas box was the equivalent of what in America we might call a goodwill box, things that you're going to 
to give away, whether that be to the uh, the Amvets Association or to Goodwill or Salvation Army or to a church rummage sale or maybe even directly to hand-me-downs to younger members of the family or friends. It was the idea of boxing up the things which are no longer wanted, the things King Moonraiser might come and take in the middle of the night if you didn't do it yourself. I was quite taken by this idea, even though I know now is probably you know, somewhat apocryphal. This idea of going through a growth process, of working through the maturity challenge of deciding what you truly don't need anymore from what you truly do need, and then putting these things which at one time had been cherished in the hands of somebody else that you intend to bring a great deal of joy, intend for them to derive joy from possessing that toy or even an item of clothing, that was a good idea. And so let's contrast that to what Wikipedia says the definition of Boxing Day is. Boxing Day is a holiday traditionally celebrated the day following Christmas Day when servants and tradespeople would receive gifts, known as a Christmas box, from their bosses or employers in the United Kingdom, Canada, Hong Kong, and so on. Lots of other countries mentioned. Today, Boxing Day is a bank holiday that generally takes place on the 26th. There are other mentions. The origin section, for example, talks about the exact etymology of the term Boxing Day being unclear. It's essentially a uh, secular holiday. I won't go into it, but for the sake of argument, this makes it seem like the real distinction was that on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, a wealthy family would have had its entire paid staff, all these servants, for want of a better word, on-call, full-time, devoted to taking care of the needs of the family. There'd be at least one and probably more than a couple of big meals that needed to be meticulously prepared and served. It was a time of family, not for the servant class, but for the ruling class, for want of a better word. Well, in America, it would be very hard for me to have conceived of that distinction between ruling class and servant class. So I don't know that that concept could have been explained to me all that well. Maybe by the time I got to high school, I would have been able to get my head around it, but I wouldn't have been happy about it because I don't really enjoy that that distinction, which is such an important part of the history of the uh, United Kingdom and the British Commonwealth of kind of this class system, this set of sort of castes, for want of another word. As Americans, we wouldn't have really had a concept of caste. We still do, whether accurately or not, have this notion that people can move from one sort of economic class or economic caste into another over the course of their lifetime, and that no one was born to be a servant. That concept just would probably rub us the wrong way. And yet, even people in what we would call a distinctly middle class, or perhaps even a lower middle class economic standing, would be in a situation where it would be necessary, shortly after Christmas, for certain toys to just leave the toy box. Because you can't, year after year after year, add more gifts and presents to your possessions without eventually having some sort of overflow. So even though my understanding of Boxing Day as a concept could not have been more wrong, it missed on really important aspects of the definition and the history of the term. It's nevertheless one that I kind of like. So despite being wrong about it, I think that it's probably something that parents should consider doing. Do you want to sneak into your kid's room in the middle of the night as King Moonracer, taking away the toys that they don't play with enough or well enough as a sort of an act of judgment over what there's really room for and what there's not? Or would it be a much more mature understanding of our economy and what it means to give to the poor 
to have your children work through that entire thought process themselves, whether the Boxing Day idea ends up filtering toys toward a garage sale, which is still somewhat of a me focus, or whether it ends up delivering toys directly into the hands of someone who is truly in need, someone who truly has less, has little, or maybe even has nothing of the sort. That's an interesting idea. And to me, uh, my favorite concept and definition of Boxing Day. Having said that, on the 26th of December, my DVR will be working fast and furiously to record as many games as possible so that I can spend the weekend following Christmas this year enjoying the more accurate, prevalent, and current definition of Boxing Day, watching association football teams play for my enjoyment. Previously on Starbase 66. So that's that's it for my news. Anybody else have anything they really want to talk about before we move on to our evening's topic? Which would be? <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> Why have you not disclosed the information? <laughs> Do you guys even read the emails I send you? Oh. Stop using big words. I'm named Unk for a reason, dude. <laughs> Unk. Listen to Star Wars 66, the international Star Trek and genre fiction podcast on SimplySyndicated.com, SoundCloud, and iTunes. I'm about to violate one of my kind of rules here when it comes to the different drummer. First, I like for the different drummer to be a small part of the topic of the show, and that's hard to do in this case. And second, I try to avoid doing a different drummer segment where the topic is so big, where the person is so big, that I either can't do it justice or I have to go on and on. In this case, I think I'm going to go on and on, and I'm also going to go on and on with what I would call a quote fest. Because I think that this week's different drummer is somebody who probably doesn't get enough credit, despite getting a tremendous amount of credit, for songwriting skill and ability. Our different drummer is Elvis Costello. connection could there possibly be between Elvis Costello and the concept of Boxing Day? Well, it's the thinnest of all thin possible connections. On the album Punch the Clock, released around the time that I was starting university, called 1983, he released a song called TKO, Boxing Day. It has nothing whatsoever to do with December 26th. In fact, it's about interpersonal conflict. The last verse goes like this. You need a back to break or a back to stab? Now your birthday suit looks dull and drab. Every day will be Boxing Day. Now you don't look so glamorous. Whenever I feel so amorous, I can count you out. T-K-O. All right. So nothing to do with the concept of Boxing Day. Nevertheless, a song called Boxing Day. And I'm going to be quoting lyrics today from a site, a wiki. It's called uh, elviscostello.info slash wiki. It looks to be a fairly complete list of songs from Elvis Costello with lyrics I'm assuming reasonably well vetted because for me Elvis Costello is more about the words than the music. I want to give him credit. As a musical collaborator he's done really great things. Uh, Under the artistic significance section of the Wikipedia page, the formal Wikipedia page for Costello, it notes that he's worked with Paul McCartney, Tony Bennett, T-Bone Burnett, Lucinda Williams, Kid Rock, Brian Eno, and, and others. So he is a good musical collaborator. 
He's worked with more than one set of groups, in fact. On my MP3 player today, I'm carrying 126 songs by Elvis Costello, and to be honest with you, that feels a little light. When I did the math on it, I felt like I'd come up short in one way or another. Now, the reason I had to do the math is that I'm showing tracks by Elvis Costello uh, just in the way the music is, the metadata is managed under both Elvis Costello, Elvis Costello and the Attractions, Elvis Costello and the Imposters, Elvis Costello and the Brodsky Quartet, and most recently, Collaboration with the Roots. So I'm going to look at his albums, starting with the first one, My Name is True, 1977, all the way until just a little bit more than a year ago in 2013, when the Wise Up Ghost Deluxe Edition was released, with Elvis Costello performing with the Roots. So again, 126 songs. By adding all those song counts together, just seemed a little bit lighter than it probably should be. Because I think that if I were voting artists off my my musical island in a Survivor-style contest of sorts, Elvis Costello would be there for the last Tribal Council. Let's just put it that way. So let me do a little bit of a review, maybe some biographical information, and then I really want to talk about the songs. Because, again, if I were thinking to myself about having to weed out songs from my MP3 player, I would have a very difficult time uh, getting to the point of cutting where Elvis Costello himself would have any cuts to deal with. And if I look just at Elvis Costello's catalog, if 126 songs feels light to me, that also kind of implies that I'd have a hard time getting rid of very many, at least of maybe what I'd call the top 100. But when I go to the All Media Guide at www.allmusic.com and do what I often do when I'm dealing with a music artist, I want to talk about the biography written by Stephen Thomas Erlewine for Elvis Costello. And the kind of caption, the first page of the section for Elvis Costello says this, The most evocative, innovative, and gifted songwriters since Bob Dylan, with songs that offer highly personal takes on love and politics. I won't even begin to say that overstates the case. To me, that's high praise, but high praise pretty well earned. The biography itself starts this way. When Elvis Costello's first record was released in 1977, his bristling cynicism and anger linked him with the punk and new wave explosion. A cursory listen to My Aim is True proves that the main connection that Costello had with the punks was his unbridled passion. He tore through Rock's back pages, taking whatever he wanted, as well as borrowing from country, tin pan alley, pop, reggae, and many other musical genres. Over his career, that musical eclecticism distinguished his records as much as his fiercely literate lyrics. Because he supported his lyrics with richly diverse music, Costello emerged as one of the most innovative, influential, and best songwriters since Bob Dylan. The son of British bandleader Ross McManus, Costello, born Declan McManus, worked as a computer programmer in the early 1970s, performing under the name D.P. Costello in various folk clubs. In 1976, he became the leader of country rock of a country rock group called Flip City. During this time, he recorded several demo tapes of his original material with the intention of landing a record or recording contract. A copy of these tapes made its way to one of the heads of a fledgling independent record label called Stiff. Jake Riviera signed Costello to Stiff as a solo artist in 1977. The singer-songwriter adopted the name Elvis Costello at this time, taking his first name from Elvis Presley and his last from his mother's maiden name. That's enough cursory biography for Elvis Costello, because what I really want to do is focus on the lyrics. Costello has links to country music and folk music, as mentioned in that short biographical section, and he would prove to be 
a capable collaborator with people in what we would call the easy listening and even classical veins. But I think what I want to do is kind of walk through, almost chronologically, a look at Costello. And if you want to do chronological view, you kind of have to start with the very first Stiff Records recording, Less Than Zero. For Americans, Less Than Zero has to be kind of a difficult thing to decipher. I think as a teenager, when I first started listening to Costello, my only understanding was that there was someone named Oswald, who was a very unsavory person, who I had never heard from or of before, who was some sort of British politician. I found an interesting article on a website called TurnMeOnDeadMan.com. TurnMeOnDeadMan is an uh, internet radio station of sorts, you know, focusing on uh, garage punk and psychedelia. And with a headline that says, JFK assassination song, Less Than Zero, the Dallas, the Dallas version, I wanted to focus instead on his first performance of that in December 1977 on Saturday Night Live, because Elvis Costello's appearance on Saturday Night Live remains one of the seminal moments in the history of the show. And he was starting off by playing what I considered to be, at the time, probably one of my favorite Elvis Costello songs, and then morphed it into one of my least favorite Elvis Costello songs, Radio, Radio. Here's how it's described on this website, Turn Me On, Dead Man. Elvis Costello was supposed to play Less Than Zero from his debut album, My Aim Is True. He played a few bars of the song and then abruptly stopped, telling the audience, quote, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, there's no reason to do this song here. Then he launched into Radio, Radio instead, causing the show to run over time and getting him banned from Saturday Night Live for 13 years. Perhaps he did this because he thought Less Than Zero would mean little to an American audience. The Oswald in the song refers to Oswald Mosley, who organized the British Union of Fascists in the 1930s. Elvis Costello had recently seen Oswald Mosley on the BBC and had been disgusted by his unapologetic tone. As Costello explained in the liner notes for the 2001 Rhino reissue of My Aim is True, quote, Less Than Zero was a song I had written after seeing the despicable Oswald Mosley being interviewed on BBC television. The former leader of the British Union of Fascists seemed unrepentant about his poisonous actions in the 1930s. The song was more of a slandering fantasy than a reasoned argument. Within a few weeks of his appearance on Saturday Night Live, however, Costello performed Less Than Zero with alternate lyrics that would have had much more meaning for the American audience, turning it into a JFK assassination bent. I prefer the original, and the original goes something, includes lyrics, let's put it this way, that goes something like this. Oswald and his sister are doing it again. They've got the finest home movies that you have ever seen. They've got a thousand variations, every service with a smile. They're going to take a little break and they'll be back after a while. Well, I hear that South America is coming into style. Turn up the TV. No one listening will suspect. Even your mother won't detect it, so your father won't know. They think that I've got no respect, but everything means less than zero. A pistol was still smoking. A man lay on the floor. Mr. Oswald said he had an understanding with the law. He said he heard about a couple living in the USA. He said they traded in their baby for a Chevrolet. Let's talk about the future. Now we've put the past away. Very caustic lyrics. And amazingly caustic lyrics for a first song. But then again, there was something about that first album, My Aim is True, that I think really kind of resonated in many ways. It was a debut for a songwriter who was, let's say, much more mature than his inexperience would have led you to believe he would be. The very first song on the very first album was Welcome to the Working Week, and it began with this particular line, talking ostensibly to a page three girl on a British tabloid. 
now that your pictures in the paper are being rhythmically admired, and you can have anyone that you've ever desired, all you got to tell me now is why, 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 why? I'm not sure that an American artist in 1977 could have gotten away with the expression rhythmically admired, at least not on a major record label. But that was the debut for My Aim is True, and that also has quotable moments from Miracle Man, Allison, Watching the Detectives. I'm going to quote one more, the beginning of side two of the vinyl, as I found it. So side one began with this notion of rhythmically admired. Side two, with the song The Angels Want to Wear My Red Shoes, began with this line. I used to be disgusted, but now I try to get amused. But since their wings have gotten rusted, you know the angels want to wear my red shoes. Costello followed that up in 1978 with this year's model. And the song that I want to quote from this year's model, trying to at least control the scope of the song quotations that I do, is The Beat. And again, Costello making what ostensibly might be masturbatory references and getting away with it through the poetry itself. The specific verse I want to talk about goes this way. Oh, I don't want to disease you, but I'm no good with machinery. Oh, I don't want to freeze you. Stop looking at the scenery. I keep thinking about your mother. Oh, I don't want to lick them. I don't want to be your lover. I just want to be your victim. I don't go out much late at night. I don't go out much at all. Do you think you were the only one who was waiting for a call? On the beat, on the beat, on the upbeat. Elvis Costello from his second album, This Year's Model. My absolute favorite Elvis Costello album, and probably the first one I actually bought on vinyl, was Armed Forces. I think I mentioned Armed Forces before. If I didn't directly, I should have. Inappropriate Conversations number 107, a eulogy for homophobia. I believe I mentioned the story of a college roommate taking one of my two copies of Armed Forces and using it to pull a shaving cream prank on one of our neighbors on the dormitory floor, uh, pulling out the record sleeve and packaging and filling the empty cardboard up with shaving cream that you could stuff under someone's door and then step on to spray shaving cream all over the inside of a locked dorm room. Uh, and how unhappy I was that he had, first off, messed up one of my favorite albums, and how lucky he was that he didn't mess up the rare import edition, that he had messed up the over-the-counter, over-the-shelf Sony Columbia Music edition. But yeah, still, my favorite, Elvis Costello, probably Armed Forces. And that starts with Accidents Will Happen. There's so many people to see, so many people you can check up on and add to your collection, but they keep you hanging on until you're well hung. Your mouth is made up, but your mind is undone. Actually, my favorite song from that album, at least lyrically my favorite song, has got to be Two Little Hitlers. It's lyrics that pop into my head even at unexpected moments, when I'm dealing emotionally with something that I'm not prepared to deal with or would prefer not to deal with. It's sometimes these concepts which come to my mind. I think I'll pick and choose my way through the entire song. Why are we racing to be so old? I'm up late pacing the floor... I won't be told. You have your reservations. I'm bought and sold. I'll face the music. I'll face the facts. Even when we walk in polka dots and checker slacks. Bowing and squawking, running after tidbits. Bobbing and squinting, just like a nitwit. Two little Hitlers will fight it out until one little Hitler does the other one's will. I will return. I will not burn. Down in the basement? I need my head examined. I need my eyes excited. I'd like to join the party, but I was not invited. You make a member of me. I'll be delighted. I wouldn't cry for lost souls you might drown. Dirty words for dirty minds written in a toilet town. 
Dalmia Valentine, she's a smooth operator. It's also calculated. She's got a calculator. She's my soft-touch typewriter, and I'm the great dictator. Two little Hitlers will fight it out. A simple game of self-respect. You flip a switch, and the world goes out. Nobody jumps as you expect. I would have thought you would have had enough by now. You call selective dating for some effective mating. I thought I'd let you down, dear, but you were just deflating. I knew right from the start we'd end up hating. Pictures of the merchandise plastered on the wall. We can look so long that we don't have to talk at all. You say you'll never know him. He's an unnatural man. He doesn't want your pleasure. He wants what no one can. He wants to know the names of all those he's better than. Again, I can't recite a particular story with a particular example of when words like she's also calculating, she's got a calculator, or he wants to know the names of all those he's better than, but these concepts pop into my head more often than I might want to admit, truth be known, all related to my love for this particular Elvis Costello album that also includes the song Party Girl, once remade by Linda Ronstadt, and Two Little Hitlers. I'd like to move now less in a chronological order and perhaps maybe jump over to my Elvis Costello playlist and simply sort the album tracks themselves by album name so I can at least deal with albums together in a particular sequence. And I'm going to skip the first one that I've got here, Almost Blue, because the entire album is a remake of country songs written by others. I would say, though, that the Graham Parsons track, How Much I've Lied, and the Charlie Rich song, Sitting and Thinking, it was Elvis Costello who actually introduced me to those songs, to the original artists, and has led me to buy that original material. So I think Costello achieved what he might have had as his goal of introducing a brand new audience to country music tracks that he frankly loved the most. From a relatively unheralded album called Brutal Youth, here's some lyrics from London's Brilliant Parade. Just look at me, I'm having the time of my life, or something quite like it, when I'm walking out and about in London's brilliant parade. She's one of those girls that you just can't place. You feel guilty desiring such an innocent face. But of course they knew that when they cast her, along with her red rootmaster. And the film takes place in an MGB, and a perfect recreation of the speakeasy. Everybody looks happy and twisted, though she probably never existed, for old time's sake. Don't let me awake. I find the album Goodbye, Cruel World to be perhaps my most disappointing Elvis Costello album. Not because the album itself is in any way really that inferior. It's just that it didn't live up to my expectations. It came after the excellent Punch the Clock album and the even better Imperial Bedroom. And it was produced by Clive Langer and Alan Wynn Stanley. These two responsible for perhaps the lyrics to Shipbuilding, one of my favorite Elvis Costello songs. We'll get there in a minute. And... You know, Clive Langer coming from Deaf School, one of my all-time favorite British bands, I just maybe expected a little bit more from it. But I do enjoy the fact that it ends with a politically-based song that deals somewhat sarcastically with a, a particular moment in time. Now, this is 1984. Political elections were going on in the United States of America. And one of the would-be Democratic contenders for the White House, uh, seemingly you know, tilting at the windmills of stopping Ronald Reagan from having a second term in office, was John Glenn from Ohio, famous primarily for being an astronaut. The Democratic nomination would go instead to Walter Mondale, and he would lose one of the most lopsided electoral races in American history. But at the time that this was going on, this is April of 1984, so well before the actual elections themselves, here's what Costello had to say in a song called 
peace in our time. They're lighting a bonfire upon every hilltop in the land. Just another tiny, tiny island invaded when he's got the whole world in his hands. And the heavyweight champion fights in the international propaganda Star Wars. There's already one spaceman in the White House. What do you want another one for? In one verse of one song, Costello dealing with the invasion of Granada, the Star Wars um, missile defense proposal, and, frankly, calling out in 1984 what I knew in 1984 was that Ronald Reagan was not of sound mind. He was probably already suffering from more than just the initial symptoms of dementia, and yet the American people re-elected him in a landslide. So again, just going alphabetically, if Goodbye Cruel World might be my least favorite Elvis Costello album, Imperial Bedroom is right there among my most favorites. I could probably just sit and quote and quote and quote from Imperial Bedroom. In fact, if I take a quick look uh, at the songs, I probably have more than... It feels like I have the whole album on my MP3 player at all times. I could be quoting from tracks like Man Out of Time, which people would have heard and been familiar with, You Little Fool, The Long Honeymoon. But I think instead what I want to do is quickly talk about the very first track on the album, Beyond Belief, and then hit Human Hands, which potentially could be my all-time favorite, lyrically anyway, my all-time favorite Elvis Costello song. But again, because of the impression Costello makes right at the beginning of songs, it's probably helpful just to deal with his later collaboration with The Roots and Elvis Costello not being a rapper in 1982, me not having any idea what a rapper might be. But his delivery, the rhythmic method of delivering so many ideas in such a short span of time, beyond belief, kicks the album off. And for me, let me know that Costello was moving not only in a different direction, perhaps, but a direction that I wanted to follow. History repeats the old conceits. The glib replies the same defeats. Keep your finger on important issues with crocodile tears and a pocket full of tissues. I'm just the oily slick on the wind-up world of a nervous tick in a very fashionable hovel. I hang around dying to be tortured. You'll never be alone in the bone orchard. This battle with the bottle is nothing so novel. So in this almost empty gin palace, through a two-way looking glass, you see your Alice. You know, she has no sense for all your jealousy. In a sense, she still smiles very sweetly. Charged with insults and flattery, her body moves with malice. Do you have to be so cruel to be callous? And now you find you fit this identikit completely. You say you have no secrets, and then leave discreetly. It goes on from there, actually turning the rhythm and the lyricism up a notch. A very uh, pungent attack upon our self-perception, perhaps? Human Hands, though, strikes me as... A uniquely Elvis Costello type of love song. A song which at the same time is equal parts self-deprecation and interpersonal dedication. The best way to handle it is just to go to the lyrics of an otherwise less than three minute song. And for me, almost a perfect pop song. The only thing I would say is difficult here is the word Reeperbahn, which refers to a German street where sex trade might have happened, not unlike maybe referring to parts of Amsterdam. Here's the lyrics. I've been talking to the wall, and it's been answering me. Oh, darling, how I miss you. I'm just the mere shadow of my former selfishness. I crave the silhouette of your kiss. With only the blue light of the TV on, lip-reading threats and false alarms, there's a boy somewhere holding hands with himself, and a girl in a window on the reaper bond. Whenever I put my foot in my mouth, and you begin to doubt that it's you that I'm dreaming about, do I have to draw you a diagram? All I ever want 
is just to fall into your human hands. With the kings and queens of the dance hall craze, checkmate in three moves in your heyday. But the girls don't listen to your line anymore. Now you're part of someone else. On the factory floor, you still say, where's the action? Now you manufacture happiness and get sold on the cheap for someone's satisfaction. All you toy soldiers and scaremongers, are you living in this world? Sometimes I wonder, in between saying you've seen too much and saying you've seen it all before. Tighter and tighter, I hold you tightly. You know I love you more than slightly, although I've never said it like this before. Whenever I put my foot in my mouth, and you begin to doubt that it's you that I'm dreaming about, do I have to draw you a diagram? All I ever want is just to fall into your human hands. All I ever want is just to fall into your human hands. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS patient care and research. Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota Chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. Okay, I feel the need to move a little bit more quickly here, just because of the amount of time. Again, I, I said it right up front, it was going to be a quote fest, but there probably are limits to that, too. The next album, going alphabetically, is The Juliet Letters, and this takes me in the direction of the collaboration he did with the Brodsky Quartet. I won't go into detail about the nature of this, but it's a very interesting project, built lyrically upon the idea of finding a bunch of letters and distributing the lyrics through the songs, but... Even musically, this is another example of collaboration where you essentially have a string quartet accompanying Elvis Costello, and his voice doesn't make me think immediately of being the kind of voice you'd want to put in front of a string quartet, which also makes the, uh, just makes the concept that much more interesting. Here are part of the lyrics to I Almost Had a Weakness, which is my favorite track from the album. Last week, Cousin Florence bit your Uncle Joe, hit him on the forehead with a knife and a fork, and said that he looked like the devil. Then she said, pass the vinegar. I'm beginning to think that I'm the only one who hasn't taken to the drinking of it, though I almost had a weakness. It pains me to mention these delicate concerns, but while I have to tolerate your family jewels, I really mustn't grumble, because when I die, the cats and dogs will jump up and down, and you little swines will get nothing, though I almost had a weakness. A song written from the perspective of a wealthy aunt who is threatening to cut her children out of the will. If you read reviews online, which I do, you find that the Costello album Mighty Like a Rose is not highly regarded. I can't speak end-to-end on the album about whether it ought to be highly regarded. I don't carry every song on my MP3 player. But I will tell you that the first song on the album is one of my favorites of his entire career and filled with just brilliant, imaginative lyrics dealing with, well, let me just quote some. The automatic gates close up between the shanties and the palace. A Boxing Day reference. My understanding versus reality, I guess. The blowtorch amusements. The voodoo chalice. The pale, pathetic promises that everybody swallows. A teenage girl is crying because so, she don't look like a million dollars. So help her if you can, because she don't seem to have the attention span. From the foam and breakers of the poisonous surf, the other side of summer, to the burning forests and the hills of astroturf, the other side of summer. Was it a millionaire who said, imagine no possessions? 
A poor little schoolboy who said, we don't need no lessons? The rabid rebel dogs ransack the shampoo shop, and the pop princess is downtown shooting up. And if that goddess is fit for burning, the sun will struggle up. The world will still keep turning. Madman standing by the side of the road saying, look at my eyes, look at my eyes, look at my eyes, look at my eyes. Now you can't afford to fake all the drugs your parents used to take. Because of their mistakes, you'd better be wide awake. Do I need to go into the fact that he took excellent pot shots at his friend John Lennon, the band Pink Floyd, and perhaps some erstwhile members of the royal family? It doesn't get much better than that. If you wanted to really make true the claim from the All Media Guide that perhaps Elvis Costello is our generation's Bob Dylan, perhaps Elvis Costello is better than just our generation's Bob Dylan. That was from the album Mighty Like a Rose, The Other Side of Summer. Speaking of princesses, or perhaps even pop princesses, I started off this by talking about TKO Boxing Day from the album Punch the Clock, but the real hit single from the album Punch the Clock was actually um, a song that, at least in the music video, portrayed it as being a Princess Diana, Prince Charles kind of a thing. A track called Every Day I Write the Book. Don't tell me you don't know the difference between a lover and a fighter. With my pen and my electric typewriter, even in a perfect world where everyone was equal, I'd still own the film rights and be working on the sequel. And I'm giving you a longing look. Every day, every day, every day, every day I write the book. Let me jump over quickly to the album Trust, just so that it won't get ignored. I'm obviously going to ignore a lot of albums, including a lot of recent work. But I want to finish with shipbuilding. But before I get there, the song New Lace Sleeves from the album Trust, both a very interesting spare musical style. So you got that musical variation that I mentioned earlier. But also just the, uh, the lyrics alone here, starting off at the beginning. Bad lovers face to face in the morning. Shy apologies and polite regrets. Slow dances that left no warning of outraged glances and indiscreet yawning. Good manners and bad breath will get you nowhere. Even presidents have newspaper lovers. Ministers go crawling under covers. She's no angel, and he's no saint. They're all covered up with whitewash and grease paint. And you say, the teacher never told you anything but white lies. Nope, I gotta do one more from Trust. Big Sister's Clothes. With a hammer on the slap and tickle under grisly garments... With all the style and finesse of the purchase of armaments. Compassion went out of fashion. That's all your concern meant. Sweat it out for 30 seconds on home improvements. But it's easier to say I love you than yours sincerely, I suppose. All little sisters like to try on big sisters' clothes. And finally, back to Punch the Clock, which is where I started. And the song Shipbuilding. Whether we think of this song as being a Robert Wyatt vehicle or an Elvis Costello vehicle... To me, it's a great American view into the Falklands War, into something that we as Americans probably would have no good reason to have any concept or understanding about. Wikipedia has a song page for shipbuilding. It says it was written by Elvis Costello and Clive Langer, the deaf school leader. Written during the Falklands War of 1982, Costello's lyrics discuss the contradiction of the war bringing back prosperity to the traditional shipbuilding areas of Clydesdale, Merseyside, Northeast England, and Belfast, to build new ships to replace those being sunk in the war, whilst also sending off 
the sons of those areas to fight and potentially lose their lives on those same ships. It's as good a frank discussion of war. You could call it an anti-war song if you wanted to. To me, it's not overtly anti-war. It's simply calling out some truths that need to be that need to be held in consideration. That on the one hand, you're building ships again, so you're not unemployed. But on the other hand, there's the rest of the story. Shipbuilding was recently discussed on the Soda Jerker podcast. Soda Jerker is an English podcast with a couple of songwriters who invite other songwriters on and do interviews about the craft of writing songs. When they had Clive Langer on the show uh, with another member of Deaf School, shipbuilding was one of the conversations that they had. Clearly, it was an important topic of discussion for them. Here, Here it goes. Is it worth it? A new winter coat and shoes for the wife, and a bicycle on the boy's birthday. It's just a rumor that was spread around town by the women and children. Soon we'll be shipbuilding. Well, I ask you. The boy said, Dad, they're going to take me to task, but I'll be back by Christmas. It's just a rumor that was spread around town. Somebody said that somebody got filled in for saying that people get killed in the results of this shipbuilding. With all the will in the world, diving for dear life when we could be diving for pearls. It's just a rumor that was spread around town. A telegram on a picture postcard. Within weeks they'll be reopening the shipyard and notifying the next of kin once again. It's all we're skilled in. We will be shipbuilding. With all the will in the world, diving for dear life when we could be diving for pearls. At the time when America was invading Grenada and the British were having their conflict with Argentina and the Falkland Islands, two songs were written in virtually the same year about both of those events. Both of them were written by Elvis Costello, meaning that Costello had a better, more mature understanding of the potential issues with American foreign policy than anybody in America could have even conceived to have done writing from an American perspective about the potential issues with the British foreign policy related to the Falklands War. No, Costello didn't bring the hammer that a band like Crass did to the anti-war perspective around that conflict. He didn't open up his song with a bomb blast the way Pink Floyd did at the start of Side 2 of the final cut in their track, Get Your Filthy Hands Off My Desert. But in many ways, Costello has written a song that is profound enough that I believe it transfers into any future conflict, which unfortunately the world is likely to have. It is this quality which makes people tend to compare him to Bob Dylan. And I've covered all of this tapestry of the broad range of what Costello has drawn for us as listeners without playing a single musical note. I don't normally do different drummer segments as a quote fest. Don't fear that this is likely to happen again. It's a sign of the unique gift of Elvis Costello. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. The show notes have comments enabled at the website, www.inappropriateconversations.org. 
Inappropriate Conversations, and the other podcast, Walk the Earth, can both be heard at Stitcher. Stitcher.com is an excellent way to listen to podcasts on the go. You can find out about new and upcoming shows by following me on Twitter, at IC underscore Greg is how I can be reached there. There is also a Facebook page for both Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations on Facebook. And on SoundCloud, IC underscore Greg is the way to find clips about the oldest shows. I've started at the beginning, and I'm putting little snippets of the uh, history of Inappropriate Conversations up on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.